This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 28 Days Later. I am one of your hosts, Sophie. Joined, as always, by my co-host and younger sister, Hannah. How's it going, Hannah? I almost for a second was like, wait, when do I unmute? Am I supposed to be unmuted now? Should I be muted? (laughs) You did it perfectly. (laughs) Now that we're uh, doing like once a month, I do feel a little out of practice. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely had the same feeling. I got a little bit nervous right before we got on on to record, and I was like, man, now that we do this less frequently... uh, it's tougher and a little peek behind the curtain. We didn't actually record an episode last month. I had been having some health problems, so we released an old episode that we had recorded earlier. So we actually haven't recorded in like two months. Wow. Okay. I didn't put that together initially. Yeah. And I was like, why do I feel so nervous? (laughs) It's been a little while. Well, and listeners might also notice that Hannah sounds absolutely velvety. It's because she's uh, borrowing a lovely new headset and she just sounds great. So (laughs) I don't know what I sound like, but I hope it's good. I guess that's also part of why I'm nervous because I'm recording for my new boyfriend's apartment and I'm scared that he's like standing behind the door listening to me. I mean, honestly, if I might say, as as your co-host, like, I feel much better about this setup than when you would record at your old boyfriend's house, like, from a closet, and I was never sure if he was just going to, like, walk in and start talking to you. <laughs> I was like, sir, we're trying really hard to be a semi-professional podcast. That's fair. Sometimes he would, like, hear something and then just, like, come in and start talking, and I'd be like, bro. <laughs> I am busy. So, Hannah and I have a lot to talk about this month, and um, the movie that we're going to talk about is so multifaceted and there is so much to get into that we're going to go ahead and dive right in because we I anticipate this being a long episode anyway. Um, yeah. So also we're we've get been to talking it. about this movie for years at this point. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's like yeah. We're, there's no time to fuck around. We're just got to get exactly. right into it. Honestly, so well put. So let's fucking get into it. Um, Hannah and I this week are discussing. Nia DaCosta's spiritual sequel to the 1992 film Candyman by Bernard Rose. This one, of course, written and directed by Nia DaCosta and co-written and produced by Jordan Peele and his production company, Monkey's Paw. So before we get super started, I want to say, like Hannah alluded to, we, and I am sure most of you, have been waiting forever for this. Like, we knew that Jordan Peele was going to be involved in some kind of sequel or remake for several years. It got a release date in 2020. That obviously got pushed back. Uh, Jeremy and I actually went to see this movie yesterday, and when his mom asked what movie we were going to see, uh, I told her we were going to see Candyman and she, you know, goes, oh no, it's too scary. It's too scary. And I said, I have been waiting for so long for this movie. <laughs> like, I absolutely can't wait. And she, you know, doesn't, she doesn't get it. But, uh, but I felt, I felt like electrics getting to the theater and getting seated. Um, so I don't know what that was like for you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, cause I remember, I think, a couple of years ago that you had, maybe you had read about that this movie was in the works, but it, it coincided with, a, a like 
the same weekend that I had been hanging out with my group of friends from Chicago and my friend Mm -hmm. had to get her hair dyed green um, to be in this movie. So I had heard about it from her. And so like you and I both came to this news at the same time in very different ways. And we're just like, this is the best thing. I'm so excited about this Um, because I think for anybody in general, this is extremely like the, the premise is a lot to get excited about. But I think especially for people who love Chicago, who live or have lived in Chicago, like to hear that this was being made and that it was in such capable hands was like Mm -hmm. so exciting. A hundred percent. Now Hannah already knows this, but I did an, some might say obscene amount of prep and research for this episode. So I'm just going to say Which is so unlike you. I know. I never do this. Um, (laughs) So I'm just going to say ahead of time for the listener and for my lovely co-host, please bear with me. I listened to no fewer than um, four different podcast episodes analyzing the original Candyman. I also read a ton of articles about the new Candyman. So I'm going to do my best to try to keep myself semi-streamlined so that it sounds like how we usually talk. But I also think that there's more of a chance that I might jump around as we talk about this movie because there's so much stuff I want to try to touch on. So if I sound a little discombobulated for the listener, that's why my notes are pages and pages and pages long. So Mm -hmm. let's dive right in, Hannah. Let's talk a little bit about the original movie um, because I think this film enjoys a really interesting place in the lexicon and canon of horror movies. So tell me about your experience with the original film and how you feel about it. Okay, so um, for quite a while, the original movie was a movie to me that I was aware of and kind of like had seen a lot of scenes from and knew a lot about it, um, but hadn't actually seen. Um, So I think it was maybe last Halloween or Halloween two years ago that I actually watched it. Oh, for the first time. For the first time, yeah. I watched it with my old roommate Garrison because he hadn't seen it either. So, and I think we talked about Garrison on the podcast before, but just that he's also a a horror fan. So, yes, neither of us had seen it. I wonder actually, maybe it was a few years. I I don't know. Everything's, you know, the last like year and a half is just a I know. Time is a flat circle at this point. Yeah. It's a man-made construct. Um, So anyway, um, we watched it together and... That was a very interesting experience because especially like there are certain classics that sometimes in my mind I'm like, I don't need to see this movie because I've heard so much about it or I've seen Mm -hmm. clips. Um, And so I think to actually watch it was a very different experience than I was expecting. Like I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot more going on here. Yeah. Um, And I also when I was aware of the original Candyman, like growing up and everything, I had very little knowledge of Chicago at that time Mm -hmm. um or like the like the history so it was actually really interesting too to watch it like for the first time more recently as a as an adult who lives in Chicago yeah um and also because um you know like I'm a little embarrassed to say I, I I mean probably like a lot of people and especially a lot of white people I had like very little um knowledge of like housing like just housing projects and the issues surrounding um the I don't know if facilitation is the right word but just that system 
Sure. Sort of like the way that those uh, geographies are sort of created and constructed and borders are built around them and things like that. Yes. And even even up until recently, like uh, mm-hmm. for as, as some people know, I'm in uh, getting my master's in social work right now. And so we did some uh, we did we studied uh another example um of the Pruitt Igo housing projects mm-hmm. um and so I, yeah so to also watch the movie as i'm learning about these things is was very different um because before that like my sorry i'm like rambling here a little bit but um the first job i had in chicago was a nanny for a family that lived in what is now called Gold Coast, mm-hmm. um, but is very near to Cabrini Green. Um, and I actually used to take the boys that I nannied to swim lessons um, at a school that is like right across from where that church is. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I think is it okay to say that the boys you were na- the family you were nannying for was a was a white and more well off family? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and I had some issues with that family. Um, <laughs> yeah, one time they got mad at me for teaching their two year old <laughs> that Obama was the greatest president of all time. <laughs> they were like, "Yeah, our son was like saying he saw Obama on the TV and pointed and said." greatest president and I was like I don't know anything about that um <laughs> that so many places he is in Chicago after all <laughs> right but anyway so all of this is to say that f- for a long time my only understanding of this idea of like Cabrini Green and the history behind it was from that family from the parents in that family mm-hmm. and them obviously having a very skewed perspective um and I remember when when the dad said something to me about it, that I was like, that doesn't seem right. Um, and so I ended up like doing more research into it on my own. Cause I was like, Hmm, this is not something I'm aware of, but this mm-hmm. is something I p- probably should be aware of. And also am aware that this person's explanation of this is flawed. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I came to the, to the original very late in the game and very recently Okay. And then, yeah, and then I have a great – well, I want to hear more about because I know you love – well, you have your own thing with the original. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair way to say it. Um, so I don't remember the first time I saw the original Candyman. It was very early in college if it wasn't in high school. So I definitely um, saw this movie much earlier than you and have seen it probably – well, I feel confident saying way more times than you have. I've probably seen this movie almost ten times at this point. Yes, it I knew that. <laughs> yeah, it definitely lives in the lexicon of some of my favorite horror movies, although I should say right off the bat that this movie is – Absolutely not without its complications. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, on that note, I would like to to make sure that we are flagging for those listening to the podcast and don't know this, that Hannah and I are both white women. So it's important to bear in mind that like that is the lens with which we are coming to this movie. And we sort of understand the inherent um, problems with, with us being sort of the ones critiquing this movie. So mm-hmm. please know that we are trying to do that in a way that is absolutely acknowledging that our viewpoint of this movie is going to be different than other people's. Um, So I remember watching this movie the first time and I was young um, and 
I was sort of like I was really blown away by the the movie itself. I mean, the original movie, uh, Bernard Rose's movie, is absolutely beautiful to look at. Um, there's a lot of really neat sort of uh, gothic romance elements in the way that it's shot, which is really which I really like and find striking. And they do a really great job, I think, of portraying um, the sort of like the architecture in Chicago uh-huh. uh, in a way that I really find find it fascinating. And so I definitely in the in my first couple of viewings, I really liked this movie, but there was always something that sort of nagged me about the way that the movie is set up. Um, And I think that's obviously only become more pronounced as I have learned more and as I have watched this movie more times. So I'm imagining that most people coming to this podcast have already seen the original Candyman, but on the off chance you haven't, it is set in Chicago. It's, it was released in 1992 and is set around that same time. And a young... I would also add just with, uh, before we get into some of that, Another thing that's really cool about the original too is just the practical effects. Oh, the yeah, the practical effects are great. The score, the Philip Glass score, is amazing. Like that that Candyman theme is um, pretty phenomenal. Um, and and you know it it starts with a very famous opening shot too. Um, so there, I mean there there is a lot I think to appreciate and to like about this movie. And none of those things mean that we don't that we can't also critique a lot of things that this movie does. Um, So like I said, the movie is set in Chicago in the early 90s. A young white graduate student named Helen Lyle, who's played um, by Virginia Madsen. She's a graduate student at UIC. Um, She must be doing something anthropology or sociology related, and she's writing her, her thesis with her friend Bernadette on urban legend. And they're sort of asking uh, different college students about, or, you know, stories they heard that happened to a friend of theirs or happened to a friend of a friend, you know. And in the course of doing this research, they hear about the story of Candyman, who supposedly haunts the Cabrini Green housing projects. And Helen sort of really focuses in on that story. And so what becomes incredibly problematic is that um, if essentially what's going on here is that, like, everything about the way that Helen approaches this project and the people that she's talking to is incredibly um, inhumane and sort of unethical. Like one of the podcasts I listened to um, sort of talked about the idea that she, every single person that she interacts with in this movie, we really see the way that she interacts with them be informed by what she thinks they can do for her Mm. and what she thinks she can get out of them. And Several characters throughout this movie, like, put their trust in her, even mm-hmm. though they, several black, black characters in particular, trust her, even though their experience has taught them that, you know, trusting a quote-unquote well-meaning white person who wanders into the project and starts sort of poking their nose into other people's business might not be a great idea. She's still able to gain the trust of some people, and everyone who believes in her, she inevitably betrays them and mm-hmm. hurts them. Um, and at the end of the day, um, just like a white woman. And at the end, and again, <laughs> we say that as two white women who definitely know that we have caused that kind of harm um, mm-hmm. in our lives in the past. And so, it's just a really interesting movie. Um, one thing I wanted to say that's really interesting, I thought was so. I I think this movie is trying to say something about race in America. So 
you will often hear cited the in, original you mean the original yes I think you will often hear cited that the original film is based off of a short story written by Clive Barker called The Forbidden, and the facts of the plot are very different between those two stories. The original story is set in Liverpool, and it is very class-based, but there isn't any racism. Hmm. And Bernard Herrmann um, was interested in setting it in Chicago after he had been in Chicago for some kind of film festival. He wanted to try to... um, make it about race. And it's interesting because I think you can see that he had, it seems like he had good intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, for example, he met with uh, representatives from the NAACP to sort of talk to them about the project and see like what kind of, you know, he wanted to try to avoid playing on stereotypes. He wanted to try to avoid making a movie that was racist. Um, and, and forgive me, but is, is, is he a, per- a person of color? He is a white man from London. Okay, so, okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's, like, doubly removed. <laughs> yeah. Um, and <laughs> See, I, so, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know that either. Right, right. And so it's really interesting because um, one of the things that a favorite podcast of mine, Faculty of Horror, talked about in their episode about this, and I'll have links to all the stuff that I, that I researched and mentioned in the episode in our show notes, but they sort of talk about the idea that this movie – is sort of, it does, I think, try to point out systemic inequality and sort of point point people's eyes at things like the conditions that people might be living in in housing projects. Now, it's important to note that I think there's a lot of things that we could say about how problematic that portrayal is and how monolithic the people that live in the projects are in the eyes of the movie. So I don't think they did a great a great job there. But like, you know, he, for example, we have Helen's character saying nobody cared about what's happening here until it happened to a white woman. Like, so it does feel like mm-hmm. the movie itself has some awareness. But right. what Faculty of a Horror really of Horror talks about is like we're living in a time now where it's not really enough to just observe something or point it out from the sidelines. You really need to take a side. Yeah. Um, and and another podcast I like called Psychoanalysis sort of talked about this movie acting the original movie acting as sort of like a Trojan horse for people that these ideas might be really foreign to them. Like if you have never thought about mm-hmm. things like this, maybe the original movie would make you think like, oh, why did nobody care when this woman died or when this child was attacked? Why didn't anyone care until a white woman was hurt? Yeah. Um, but that it doesn't, it doesn't really go as far as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as we would want it to now. So, um, yeah, I think, like, there's there's a lot to be said about the original movie, but it's fascinating to sort of see, and like you said, I think what got us so excited for the new one is knowing that it's, it's going to be in the hands of someone telling the story who is not two, three, four degrees removed from mm-hmm. the characters that she's interested in talking about, right? Right. Well, and I think also just um, for... For someone like myself who didn't know very much about Cabrini Green before I moved to Chicago, um, I think the way that basically just like the history of that area, what it, because for someone like myself who moved to Chicago, in like 2016 Mm -hmm. like I would have had no idea that it was anything other 
than what it is now, which is like a very gentrified, gigantic mm-hmm. Target and a bunch of fancy lofts. Yes. So it's like to find like I knew of Candyman as like the movie, but I didn't know like that it took place in Chicago. I didn't know I, I didn't know any of the history around it. Yeah. Um, and so even when I learned about the history more from living here, like that's part of what I was really excited about because I was like, there's something so especially like I, I, I've been um seeing a lot of different things recently and sort of contemplating things recently where this conversation around like history um and oh this is the part of the podcast where Hannah starts to struggle not to burp while she's talking (laughs) um but this you know this I've been seeing like just a lot of like famous people posting things where they're like we need to talk about history so we don't repeat it or like it's important to learn so that we don't make the same mistakes yeah um which I think is true but I've also been also thinking about that in a different way of like if that is true which I think it is we also need to teach history differently we also Mm -hmm. need to change what is being taught in schools um because the history that we're being taught is not the history is not a comprehensive history and so I think sort of like the lore of the area of Cabrini Green in Chicago, especially if you live here, is a really interesting and rich example of that. Mm-hmm. Because it it is it, – it has like these examples in media that highlight like what it was or what it was perceived to be at a time um and then to see that be so completely wiped out and like sanitized to the way it is now Mm -hmm. um is really interesting to me and so that was like one of the things that I was the most excited about to like just for like the prospect of this movie being made yeah is the idea of just how like the erasure of history and experience it, it's that in and of itself is terrifying so i like the idea of turning right of, of taking that and using it as this of as a, like as the background for a horror film i think that's a great way to put it and and one thing that i found interesting interesting sort of when you're talking about the idea of uh erasure is uh, in the podcast Psychoanalysis, which I, again, I'll link to all these, they sort of talk about mental health in horror movies. Mm. And they do, they'll do they do a series on various mental health topics. So they covered Candyman, the original, as well as Get Out when mm. they were talking about generational trauma. Mm. And they made a point that I found really interesting. Um, I think it's not unique to talk about Helen's arc being really problematic and how I think we've all come to view her storyline as more problematic. And when mm-hmm. I say we all, I mean white people. I think yeah. a lot of black audiences saw that as problematic from the jump and <laughs> were sort of slowly trying to catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sort of talk about the idea that the movie, uh, the original movie sort of replaces Candyman's trauma with Helen's and makes them equivalent to each other, which is uh, which is really horrifying in and of itself. So. Yeah. In order for so in in their estimation, Helen's trauma is that her husband is cheating on her, and 
and that she's only really able to understand her own disenfranchisement through taking on someone else's story. Uh Um, And by doing this, the movie, whether intentionally or not, equates like a wealthy, uh, well-networked woman being cheated on by her husband to a black man being tortured and lynched, which are not equivalent things. Um, But they also talk about the way that the even the movie itself in its, uh, in its conclusion sort of whitewashes Candyman literally by, um, you know, the closing scene of that movie is that Candyman's mural has been painted over with a painting of Helen as, like, this guardian angel Uh um, and this, like, white savior for that space. And so to that end, before we get into the new movie, I was just curious what your read is of the end of the movie because it really wasn't until watching the movie this time, the the older one, um, and listening to a podcast uh, called Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood where they cover this movie and they talk about the idea, like I, as a white woman, had always assumed that the residents of Cabrini Green show up at Helen's funeral to like pay respects to her as a hero, Uh right? And all these guys were like, no, she's the new Candyman and like they're not there to pay respects. They're there to like put the the hook with her and bury it with her. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, I think, I think you could read the ending either way, but the fact that it didn't even occur to me that these people would feel any way other than grateful when Helen did nothing but harm their community yeah. for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like she brought Candyman, you know, I, there's a question of whether Candyman actually was responsible for the, any of the violence that the urban legends blame him for, but he, he and or Helen are certainly responsible for the violence committed against Anne-Marie in the form of abducting her son and hurting, mm-hmm. killing her dog and the violence um, brought against all of Helen's friends. And um, and I think that's that was really striking for me. I've seen this movie, like I said, 10 plus times and it never occurred to me um, that they wouldn't just be like, this woman selflessly saved us. Isn't that great? Yeah. Um, and that's a weird feeling to sit with, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, I I, I think um and I didn't rewatch the original um and but I I do remember like when I watched it um with Garrison that both of us were just like wow wow wow. <laughs> like there was a lot of stuff in it where we were like ooh, that's that's not aged well. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and yeah. And, and even just like, yeah, like I guess, uh, especially in the original, like hearing the backstory of Candyman, I have a hard time, like having him be the villain. Uh, yes, I totally agree. Of the piece. And mm-hmm. so I, yeah, so I, like, you know, I watched it like what, like one or two years ago? And mm-hmm. I was just kind of like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think the movie itself seems to sort of struggle with whether or not he's a bad guy. Exactly. Right. Like- right. There's like some kind of a, which I think is, again, with what we were talking about before, it's a, it's like, it's not enough just to like, it's not enough just to be like, hmm, injustice. <laughs> right. You know, without being, like, critical about it. Um, 
And so I think that's kind of a an example of that where the movie sort of uh, wavers to really get into – like it, it gives you like a, a more complicated portrait, but it doesn't really get into it in the way that I think obviously this sequel was able to. Yeah. Man, I truly could talk about the – I still have so many notes on the original that I could keep talking about it forever, but that's not the movie we're covering. So I will jump back to them when they come up in relation to this movie. But okay. Let's get into talking about the movie itself. Because I have not seen it ten times. Only once. I know. <laughs> you don't have the... And you didn't just watch it like two days ago. Um, so I did want to say uh, a couple things before we get started, just to sort of lay some uh, historical context down as we go into the new movie. So the first thing I wanted to talk about... Um, is an article in the Chicago Reader from 1987 that, Hannah, um, I'm not sure whether or not you are aware of. But I did want to make sure that we sort of um, paid respects to to this actual story that seems to, in many ways, have informed some of what the original Candyman is doing in its mythology. Um, The article is called They Came In Through the Bathroom Mirror, and it is about the murder of a woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy, who was a 52-year-old woman who was living in the Grace Abbott Homes, uh, which was a public housing building. Hmm. Um, In the 80s, um, she had called the police at 845. They weren't entirely clear. You know, she was asking for help. She was saying someone was trying to come in through her bathroom. The dispatcher was confused um, and put it on the out on the radio to the other officers, but said that, you know, this woman was having a dispute with her neighbor. And so cops didn't rush over there because it was a housing project and it just sounded like some people were having an argument. Um, About 15 minutes later, two other neighbors independently called the police saying that they heard gunshots coming from her apartment. It took 10 more minutes for police to arrive. Six officers got to the uh, Grace Abbott homes. Four of them went up to her apartment, but they, they did not get an answer when they knocked on the door. They tried calling her phone and could hear it ringing, but no one came to the door. Mm. They were able to get a key from a maintenance person in the building, but it didn't work. And so the police just left. Um, the next day, another, yeah, the next day, another neighbor called saying, you know, uh, Miss Ruthie May comes by every day. I haven't seen her. Um, cops go back out. They meet with a security officer for the Chicago housing authority. Um, And they're trying to decide what to do because they still aren't getting an answer at the door. And they are saying, maybe we should break the door down. The Chicago Housing Authority security officer discourages them from doing that because he says, you know, if you break the door down, then the tenant might try to sue you. So the cops leave again. Oh, my God. And the next day, um, the same neighbor who called the day before saying that she had not seen her friend Ruthie May calls back. Um, or so I'm sorry, she, she stops calling the police because they're not helping. Yeah. So she calls the project supervisor. Um, they come by with a carpenter and drill into the apartment door and they found Ruthie Mae McCoy dead in her bathroom. Um, and someone had in fact come in through the medicine cabinet in that particular building. There were pipe chases between the walls and it was well known that you could sort of get between apartments through the medicine cabinets in a way similar to what happens in the original Candyman, And so um, I just wanted to, you know, that story when it happened was not reported in Chicago, except in the Chicago Defender, which is a historically black 
newspaper. It only made the Chicago Tribune after a second arrest was made in her case, and then it was never covered again. Mm. Um, And so I just wanted to make note of that because I think it is... um, it's pretty, it's pretty horrible. The guy that wrote the article in The Reader says, um, end quote, As for the police officer's failure to enter McCoy's apartment, well, some 911 stories are just more significant than others. Uh. The death of Nancy Clay, a white suburban white-collar worker in a loop high-rise blaze in May, and indications that the 911 system had failed her, prompted weeks of media coverage, a city council investigation, a council hearing featuring testimony by the fire commissioner, broadcast live on public radio, and several proposed ordinances. The performance of the police in the McCoy case didn't even, um, didn't even merit a departmental investigation. And so... I think it's important that we note that, like, this is a thing that happened to a real person. And along those lines, this is a story that was then sort of taken and sensationalized as entertainment by this movie, right? Like, Mm. the woman in the original Candyman who was murdered is named Ruthie Jean. Mm. And Anne Marie, the mother of the baby Anthony, um, her last name is McCoy. So this, the original Candyman obviously was aware... um, of the movie, I'm sorry, of the story, and sort yeah. of took from that. Um, again, I want to give... Like, much like Helen. Right, exactly. Like, just taking these stories and not really... Um, and just using them to sort of, like, sensationalize and understand our own experience without actually yeah. listening or thinking about the lived experience of others. So I did want to um, put that out there. And my my last nerdy rant, and then we'll jump into this movie, is I just wanted to give us a little bit of context on Cabrini Green because we did talk about it going in. So the row homes were built in 1942, and the high-rises that we see in the first movie, which have been torn down by the time the second film, I'm sorry, this film, were shot, mm-hmm. those were built in 1957. Cabrini Green was sort of right at the meeting place of Lincoln Park and Gold Coast, which, as Hannah mentioned, are two of the richest neighborhoods in Mm -hmm. Chicago. Um, For folks that live in Chicago now, where Cabrini Green was is sort of right where near North Side neighborhood uh, is now. So in 1966, there was a court case called Gartro et al. versus Chicago Housing Authority, and it alleged that the city's public housing program was, quote, conceived and executed in a racially discriminatory manner that perpetuated racial segregation within neighborhoods, and the CHA was found liable. Um, That same year, the federal government mandated the destruction of 18,000 units of public housing in Chicago. Um, So they started tearing the the Cabrini-Green buildings down then. I think the last of the the high-rises and such were torn down in 2011. Yeah. but this is a building and a community that had, um, it housed 15,000 residents. The buildings that replaced where Cabrini Green was, only 30% of those homes are public housing. And then it's only maybe 15% more that are like, quote unquote, working class affordable. Hmm. Um, so then there was a huge net loss of public and affordable housing when these um, this community was raised. Um, it's also a community that had a history of really, really active, um, tenant activism around issues, uh, civil, civil rights issues and sort of housing and legal issues for that community. So it is a place that has a very rich history that, like you said, does not in any way get acknowledged really, um, in the, in the first movie. And so, and we definitely dive more into that in the new one. So I wanted to 
lay out that foundation before we get going. Mm-hmm. So, excuse me. <clears throat> so, Hannah. See, <laughs> it's hard not to burp when you're talking. I wasn't even burping. I just, like, choked on my own spit. Um, that too. <laughs> so gross. So, anyway, let's get into uh, Nia DaCosta's Candyman. So, Hannah, as I said, you know, we talked up front about written and directed by Nia DaCosta. Jordan Peele was involved, of course. This is the first Candyman film in the franchise. There are three movies before it that has a black protagonist. <laughs> so that's a horrifying fact that uh, should disgust all of us. But Hannah, why don't you tell us what you thought of the newest uh, Candyman installment? Well, um, one thing I will say is that I will remember this experience forever because it is a one of the first and only times I've gone to see a horror movie by myself. So proud of you. In the theater. Um, other than like revivals and movies I had already seen. Um, and getting to see this movie in a like fully packed theater in Chicago was such an experience. Um, it was great. It was kind of like uh, Sophie and I joke a lot that when we went to see the new Fast and Furious movie, it was like nobody in the theater got the memo, like mm-hmm. what we were there to see, because everyone kept getting really mad at us for like yes. making noise or like just like getting amped and excited with the movie. Um, and this was like the opposite of that experience. Like people were shouting. People were laughing, people were screaming, people were, like, gasping. It was really, really great. Um, so that was just a, a great way to see this movie as well. Um, in particular, because there was also a group of, like, young, very hip young, I don't know if they were teenagers or, like, college students, Um, Mm -hmm. but they were sitting in a row ahead of me and, um, just like watching them watch it. And then also the way that they talked about it afterwards Mm -hmm. and during was really interesting and exciting to me. Um, I was like, it's cool to see kind of younger people and like seeing this movie and having a conversation Um, Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, But yeah, in general, it was really fun to see it. But um, and just because I I live in Chicago and I love Chicago and um, I was so excited to this to see this movie for so Sophie knows like my friend was in this movie. Um, My old roommate was a extra in this movie, and my new boyfriend helped film this movie so i was really excited to see it selfishly because i was you just were like, having all the feelings i was just like looking for uh people i know or like i remember when it was being filmed in the city and like there's a real sense of pride in the city even though it's talking about and putting a spotlight on aspects of this city's history that are not something to be proud of. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that to love Chicago, you have to be a, you have to be comfortable sitting in 
the segregation and the history of segregation in this city, like, if you can't acknowledge that and have a conversation about that, then you're kind of ignoring a huge part of this city's culture. Um, Some might say that the uh, same is true of our country. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Um, But yeah, so I I felt a real sense of pride watching this movie in the pride in the city, but also in the fact that I want more movies to be made like this for every Mm -hmm. city. Um, Mm -hmm. But just like, like I said before about the history, like I think if we really want to stand behind the idea of knowing more about history, because if we don't, we're kind of doomed to repeat it. This is this movie did such a good job of actually teaching important things and making like a very entertaining, a very funny, like enjoyable mm-hmm. horror movie at the same time. Like there was a lot of levity in it too that I really appreciated, especially since the original is kind of campy in a lot of ways. I appreciated that it kind of kept some of that camp, but in a way where it didn't like diminish the severity of like the history behind mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Um, yeah. I mean, cause also, I, sorry, really quick. Also, cause yeah. also from like a film perspective, like this movie was very um, like technically beautiful. Um, yes. And I, and I appreciate the way that it, it was able to pay homage and respect and like some level of respect to the like the original film um and some of that like beauty that you spoke of before in like the in the way that the original film was shot um but really update it too yeah i mean i think all of that is is a great point to your exactly what you're saying about how beautiful this movie is i remember a while back i think it was early on i forget if it was last summer when the film was supposed to be released or if it was before that when they released the little teaser that was just the the, the puppetry work mm-hmm. um so manual cinema out of chicago did the puppetry and i remember just seeing that little teaser clip and just being like this movie is going to be awesome mm-hmm. like see so i pulled at you i didn't watch that because i was like i don't want to know anything yeah, it's the only thing I had seen, and I just remember being blown away by that. And from the moment that this movie starts, I'm so in. Because, again, I had just watched the original maybe two or three days before. And so I don't know if you caught this, but I will always remember the opening of the original Candyman. It's very iconic. It's sort of this helicopter shot flying over, I believe it's flying over the Dan Ryan, um, over the city of Chicago. And you're sort of like tracking cars driving down the highway. And this movie super brilliantly opens with a mirror of that where we're sort of like going through downtown looking up at the skyscrapers but it looks like we're looking down it's it's very disorienting it honestly it made me a little bit dizzy but it in the did but it also reminds me of like you know like it's such a classic horror movie thing to start with like any movie where they're going to like a cabin in the woods and it shows like it's always like well first it used to show just like the car driving 
yeah, like to the a shining. secluded location, and then mm-hmm. and then like that kind of somebody like quote unquote subverted that by con- like continuing to use those kinds of shots, but put them upside down. Right, and then this was like that, but it was like various. The whole shot is upside down. The whole the shot is upside is down, backwards. and it's like the and then yeah, like purposefully. Um, choosing a lot of very recognizable Chicago architecture. Yeah, and it's shot mostly in the evening, and like you said, it's these buildings that we that you recognize if you recognize things about Chicago, and the tops of them are missing. So it's it creates this really interesting dynamic where there is so much, you know, there is so much there that you can't see, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's so much more of those buildings that are above the clouds that you can't see. And I love that I think from that, from the get-go, from the jump, with that scene, this movie really um, sets itself apart from the original. The original movie absolutely assumes a white audience and definitely, you know, anticipates that this is going to be a primarily white audience watching a movie about a white woman and she's our protagonist and our hero. Um, And like I said, it sort of... I think it does try to point out some issues around systemic racism, but it doesn't really do anything about them. And it doesn't really make us sit with them or hold space for them. It just sort of says like, oh, look at that. Mm -hmm. Um, From the jump with this reversed angle and then so much more of the movie, uh, Nia DaCosta really puts us inside of the mirrors so that we can't be passive about what's happening in the movie. And as a white audience... We can't be passive about the the role that we have played, mm-hmm. both individually and culturally and historically, as white people in this country, in these stories and the ways that they are told and the way, and the ways that these traumas are created. Um, and like I said, just from that immediate opening sequence, I was like, "This is already so brilliant! I am completely and totally." in love mm-hmm. and using I don't remember the actual name for them Jeremy and I call them the Wilco Towers those two towers that's that what I like, call them too I think okay. it's Marina Tower so seeing those towers that's what uh, they're actually which, called I think yeah which look like beehives um <laughs> and using them so much and to such great effect too like that she does a great job of using the um the architecture and the skyline and sort of the the spirit of Chicago in a way that the original movie doesn't capture in the same way. Yeah. Also, you know? like, for anyone who's ever lived in Chicago or lives in Chicago, like, uh, that happens so often, especially in the winter, um, where the clouds, like, the buildings are so tall that the clouds just, right. like, hide the top of the buildings. And it is really creepy, and I remember too, like during, um, like, I don't know, a couple months into COVID times, um, the Tribune printed a, like a front page article being like, some cities smog is getting better since everyone's quarantining. Chicago's is still not. <laughs> and it was just like this picture of all the buildings covered in like the dark, creepy clouds. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I feel like it, that's also kind of a a a staple of downtown in the fall and winter is like that creepy, like the clouds that feel like they come all the way down to the ground almost. Yeah. 
like something is going to swallow the city a little bit. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. So, Hannah, I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you give us a plot synopsis for the new Candyman? Because um, I feel like I've been talking a lot. I think I can. <laughs> um, okay. So, <laughs> so to give you a plot synopsis. Now, you would think in a movie where the tagline is, isn't the tagline say the name? <laughs> say his name. Say his name. Everything is say my name. Everything is say the name. I, much like every movie we ever cover on this podcast, I don't remember anybody's names. Yaya's name is Anthony McCoy. Okay, see, I know that, I I mean, the one name I remember is that his, um, his partner's name is Brianna, mm-hmm. because I found that very uh, eerie, um, Yeah, and like, it gives me goosebumps even just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, so we meet, now see again, the the actor who plays Brianna's brother. Nathan Stewart Jarrett. Okay, he played Curtis on Misfits, <laughs> which was like one of my favorite shows in high school. <laughs> and I can remember that, but I don't know his name in the movie. His name in the movie is Troy, and his boyfriend's name is Grady. Wait, I didn't remember that because, um, Sophie, do you remember in my in my play, my horror play in high school, the main character's name was Grady? I do remember that. Yeah. Okay, so basically, we've got Curtis from Misfits, Troy, Troy, Yaya from Real Life, Anthony McCoy, Anthony McCoy. Um, and then Troy's sister and Anthony's partner, Brianna, they are all, well, Brianna and Anthony are involved in the art world and the art scene in Chicago. Um, Brianna is a curator and Anthony is an artist, um, kind of looking for his inspiration for his next big thing, still trying to like get his big break of sorts. Um, and he ends up coming to that via Troy telling the story of Candyman over, uh, a dinner party. And then he begins to like dive deeper into the lore around that. And the community. Can I pause you for one second? Cause I think this is interesting. What? He doesn't tell the story of Candyman. He tells the story of Helen. Oh, right. He tells the story of, like, a crazy white woman Mm. coming to the projects and wreaking havoc on the residents there. Yeah. But doesn't he say... He doesn't say Candyman at all in that? He does not. Oh, wow. Okay. I think we find out about Candyman later from William Burke, which is Coleman Domingo's character. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry, I really threw you off there. So, he, But he tells them an urban legend, and it sort of gets stuck in right. Anthony's head. Yeah. Yeah, and then he goes down a rabbit hole of Yeah, sorts. he goes straight into the beehive, if you will. If you will. Um, a really creepy fact that I read in an article, uh, sorry, an interview on Collider with Nia DaCosta is that while they were working on this movie, they were... Um, sitting in a house writing and a and they heard a noise outside 
and they looked out, all the windows were open, and there was, she said, the biggest swarm of bees she had ever seen, and they were all running around trying to close the windows, oh my and God. they were finding, like, dead bees in the house for days. Oh, That's also really it's unfortunate, because, creepy. you know, save the bees. Save the bees. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, when they're in your house. You know what? Maybe in 20 years, um, a bee will be making Candyman about the experience of being a bee. And forced into Tony Todd's mouth. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll all be like looking back on it like, man, we just didn't see it from that bee's perspective. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, I'm like, I'm trying. But they use CGI bees in this movie. In this movie. Yeah, for sure. No bees were harmed in the making of this Candyman. So, right. So in hand, like Hannah's saying, I mean, this movie opens in a really interesting way where the story that we hear originally is Helen's story. Mm -hmm. And then as he is trying to get inspiration for his art project, Anthony becomes more and more interested with the lore of Candyman and sort of starts to hear different stories. Um, I really like this quote from Nia DaCosta. She said, we wanted to be as specific as possible for me The film is really about how storytelling is used around these horrific events to either help process or to campaign or to create a martyr out of people who ended up leaving us too soon through these terrible acts of racial violence. And Mm. so, again, the original Candyman really centers around the story of Candyman, but we never learn his name. Mm. We do in in the sequels that come later. We learn his name is Daniel Robitaille, but we don't learn his name... In the original film. Um, And we don't really learn um, why what happened to him made him a ghost. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood podcast, they talk about Candyman's backstory. And they sort of make the point that here is a man that by all accounts did everything right. You know, like he is the grandson of a of a freed person who had previously been enslaved who has made well for themselves his dad uh got famous and made quite a bit of money inventing a machine to help uh manufacture shoes for the civil war presumably his family has migrated to chicago out of the south during the great migration and yet this horrible atrocity still happens to him Mm -hmm. and i think something that the original movie doesn't grapple with is that what happened to Daniel Robitaille is not in, in a lot of ways is not dramatically or, um, or actually worse than what happened to thousands Mm -hmm. of black people, especially black men Mm -hmm. during the very, very long reign of lynching and terror in, in the United States, particularly the South, but not just the South. Mm -hmm. And so like why why would Candyman if something like what happened to Daniel Robitaille could make someone a ghost why is he the only one yeah you know what I mean because he's not the only person who went through that experience well and isn't that kind of what this movie Mm -hmm. explores or or goes into is it's like Candyman isn't so much one person but like the collective conscience conscious Mm-hmm. of all of the people who are who have been killed in similarly violent and horrific and racially motivated mm-hmm. circumstances. Yeah. 
And I think this movie looks much more, um, takes a much more focused look at what does it mean what happened to Daniel Robitaille. He's not the only one we hear about for sure. Mm -hmm. But this movie, I think the original movie makes the choice to not show us any of the violence. Mm -hmm. This movie shows us a lot of the violence through the the light puppets Mm -hmm. um, and the shadow puppets. But it's really interesting to really force us to grapple with this and not just let it be like, not that the stories aren't horrific enough, but it's not enough for it to just be a horrific story. You need to feel the stories that this movie is telling you that this movie wants you to yeah. sit with those things. Well, and I, I don't, I mean, I guess this is sort of, we're about an hour in. I feel like that's a point in the podcast where it's like, <laughs> like, are we allowed to start getting into spoilers? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's a, a, an interesting point. Cause I, I remember you saying, before I saw this movie that in an interview uh, Nia DaCosta had said that she was that this movie was not going to um, like explicitly show violence against people of color mm-hmm. um, or as I as I uh, saw recently <laughs> on a TikTok that I, I was watching. I don't have any. T- I don't have a TikTok, but I was. Wa- I watch compilations of them on YouTube sometimes. Um, and there was a person on there who spoke about how uh, she heard the term instead of saying people of color, say people of the global majority. I love that. Um, <laughs> I've never heard that. So yeah, and I think that that's a uh, yeah. So anyway, I'm trying to do that more. But knowing that, I went into this movie knowing that we weren't. That there, that, that it had been said that they were not going to explicitly show violence against people of the global majority. And I, like, I knew that. And then, but I was also, like, interested to see how that played out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, like, a, but one thing that I found to be very striking was that although the violence against people of color in this movie is primarily shown through the puppetry, especially with the puppetry sequences after the movie finishes, mm-hmm. it was very nearly... not That's not the right term, very nearly, but it was still horrific mm-hmm. and heart It was very effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though it wasn't showing it in the same way, it, especially with like the stories at the end, it's like those stories are so real and so heartbreaking that even in, in, the form of puppets it was still very effective yeah i mean i think i think the movie makes a very intentional choice like you said to to, it wants you to feel those stories and it wants you to have to sit with how horrifying those stories are but it doesn't want to exploit them Mm -hmm. right so like violence in horror movies is almost always exploitative and there is quite a bit of body horror in this movie Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that most of the body horror we see 
Uh, we often don't see it happen. We see the aftermath. And the body horror that we see is perpetrated specifically against white folks who are... Uh, trash. Like, who are <laughs> trash. Who are who are exploiting or wronging mm-hmm. um, our characters in some way. Right. And I want to talk about that because... And also, it's very, very rare. Uh, there's... There's no nudity in this. Right? Right. Right. I mean, the only really like even the only thing that's like sexually exploitive in this is just like yeah, yeah, his body, which like come on. <laughs> <laughs> so like come on. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, speaking of exploitation, he's so hot. <laughs> he is. He is an absolutely st- I mean, this entire cast was so visually stunning to look at that it was, like, honestly distracting in the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, because also, um, I already closed my IMDb. Even, like, so the youths, like, even the high schoolers, I was like, everyone looks so pretty. Tayana Paris, who played Brianna, was, like, so absolutely beautiful mm. that it was distracting. Mm-hmm. Um so, but yeah, I want to talk about the way that this movie um, frames exploitation because as we've talked about, the original movie has at its core a protagonist who is exploiting most of the people around her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we see her. But Sophie, it's for of, science. I know. I'm just kidding. But it's funny I'm because just kidding. at the end That's of the day, like, yeah. I, I hope I everybody know knows are. how facetious that was. <laughs> also, it's also fun fact. It's not science because she already has her hypothesis decided when she goes in there. And that's not how that works. Right. That's not how the scientific method works. Yes. Anyway. And there's just a um, lot of things surrounding anthropology in general that are very problematic. Yeah, I mean, anthropology is uh, inherently, like, white supremacist and patriarchal, so we have a lot of problems uh, just right off the bat. But yeah, she is so such a, an Wouldn't have this podcast character. without it. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so I love that the first reference to bees that we get in this movie is in the scene where William Burke is telling the story of the Candyman of his childhood, mm-hmm. which was this man who had a hook for a hand and worked at the candy factory and would give candy to the children. And when a white, a young white girl um, gets hurt because there is a razor blade in her candy, the police decide it's him and they beat him to death. Mm-hmm. And they talk about the police. Which quote is. Unquote, sorry. Never mind. <laughs> they talk about the police, quote unquote, swarming. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really show it, right? I mean, it's like 15, 20 police officers running down there and later on we get um we get a scene where brianna is talking to this curator at a museum which i'm imagining was the contemporary arts museum downtown yeah mca okay yeah um and there really is a candy factory in chicago and downtown smells like chocolate every day oh that's the best um (laughs) that is pretty great but so that Right, that woman, when she is talking to Brianna, and Brianna is feeling like really validated and valued that she is um, having a conversation with someone in her field that she really respects. And then it becomes clear that this woman is maybe less interested in Brianna because of her talents, but is interested in her because of the fact that um, her father, who was a famous artist, took his own life and. Uh, she was working for a curator and gallery owner who was murdered and her boyfriend 
is the guy that's painting all these Candyman pieces. She feels she seems to be really keen on exploiting um, Brianna's sort of uh, vicinity to trauma. And she talks about how her board is just buzzing about Anthony, right? So I love that then this movie sort of creates this um, imagery of bees and swarms sort of like symbolizing exploitation in the way that I think the white folks exploited Daniel Robitaille in the original story, where they sort of allowed him to be successful and accepted and well-liked, but only to a point. And once they felt like he had gotten outside of the tiny little purview they had made for him, that was no longer acceptable. Um, I mean, there's a line in this movie where Burke says, they love what we make, not us. And so I just really love that, um, that symbolism of sort of adding the sort of like parasitic, not that bees are inherently parasitic, but the sort of like in a parasitic swarming symbolism to these larger uh, exploitative systems. Um, So obviously this movie is interested in taking a much more multifaceted look at the mythology and the lore of the Candyman because the original Candyman just takes this one person, right? And this doesn't even give us the name. Right. We don't even get his name. And this movie is much more interested in looking at, the ways throughout history that these kind of stories have happened. Yeah. And so I want to talk about... And can I ask, because I assume that you will know the answer to this, and at the risk of exposing my own ignorance, um, Mm -hmm. but perhaps... Perhaps exposing both of our ignorance? Well, or, you know, or just like letting people know that it's okay to be... If you're, it's okay to admit when you're ignorant, just try to educate yourself. Yeah. Um, The names that they that in particular like toward the end of the movie when and again I don't remember the character's name but the guy who works in the laundromat who was in the Walking Dead spinoff William William Burke is that character's name and the actor's name is Coleman Domingo yeah I can tell you like 10 things he's been in but (laughs) not the name in any of them but anyway um, he when he's naming other people who were killed in like racially motivated violence Mm -hmm. were those real names so i don't know because i because i saw this in a movie like i couldn't write anything down and i didn't i didn't recognize any of them but my guess would be yes based on just like what i know about the way this movie was made and the interest this movie had in sort of like creating and starting a dialogue i mean one of the things that uh, we can talk about is that at the end of this movie, they tell you that they have an entire, like, impact campaign to try to, like, educate people. They – so if you go to candymanmovie.com slash impact, which we'll link to in the show notes, they have a 20-minute panel of Coleman Domingo speaking to um, experts, including Tanana Reevedu, who we love, um, about the impact of black horror – they also have a ton of resources uh, that you can go to for um, black emotional mental health and therapy for black girls. They put together a companion like discussion and education guide with the Langston League. I mean, they were super um, interested in making this like a multifaceted educational yeah. thing. Well, so I it would be my guess like that, that, that they were real names. I also saw a disclaimer. They had, they had that disclaimer at the end that said like, 
all the names and experiences are fictional and like any resemblance to actual events is you know like how they have at the end of like sort of like the boilerplate disclosure yeah Yeah. exactly so i i just wasn't sure yeah well one of the things one of the stories that i know for a fact um i shouldn't say i know for a fact it's entirely possible that this um similarity was by accident but i don't think so um is a case that I recognized in the closing credit sequence. So as Hannah alluded to earlier, during the closing credits, we get this long sequence of these puppets sort of showing different stories of how other quote-unquote candy men have been created. Um, and one of them that you may or may not have recognized was George Stinney Jr. Does that name re- mean anything to you? Mm-hmm. So George Stinney Jr. was the youngest person ever executed in the United States. He was 14 years old when he was uh, killed by electric chair in South Carolina. Um, This took place in 1944. Uh, He and his older brother were originally arrested on suspicion of murdering two young girls. Um, before the girls had been found dead, they had ro- they rode their bikes. Two white girls had ro- ridden their bikes by George Stinney's house and asked he and his older sister where they could find this particular kind of flower. Um, his older brother was later released, but George was not. Um, he was not allowed to talk to a lawyer or see his parents. The police starved him and withheld food and eventually bribed him with food to confess to the crime. Um, his entire court proceeding from jury selection to sentencing only took one day. They only deliberated for less than 10 minutes about his guilt. Um, And when he was executed, he was so small that electric chairs aren't built for children. Um, They had to use a Bible as a booster seat for him to sit on. Oh my God. Um, In case this is not clear, he was innocent of this crime Uh, his sentence was vacated in 2014 um but it's a really horrifying case um there are photographs of him like as when they are like strapping him into the electric chair and it's horrifying um honestly even so as soon as i saw that as soon as i see of that that's still right even unacceptable either way it's right yeah right and so i mean like That is just one example of ways that this movie is trying to take these stories and sort of put them into a context and help us understand, right? Like, the original movie isn't interested at all in how Cabrini Green got to be the way it is, right? Like, it's just like, Cabrini Cabrini Green is horrifying, Mm -hmm. and the people that live there are scary, the end. And it doesn't really, it's not really interested in taking shades there. they're either scared or they need a white person to help them. Right. And the the original movie does humanize some of the black characters, but none of them are black men. It's all women and children. Mm-hmm. There are no black men in the original movie that we are um, made to empathize with and sit with. And so um, I found it really important for this movie to center a black man um, and sort of show the ways that the exploitive and harmful nature of our society would sort of prey on him mm-hmm. um yeah i agree with that although i also think this movie did and this is also kind of a spoiler did a little bit of a switcheroo 
in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because, Explain that. Talk more about well, it. Well, I think the real protagonist of this movie is Brianna. Mm-hmm. And I think... She certainly does end up being our final girl. She does. And, like, for... Also, like, even for periods of time where it seems as if we're following Anthony, um, we're always also seeing, like, what Brianna is doing simultaneously. Um, So it's also not like she kind of, like, comes in at the end. It's like we really are following her arc the whole entire time. Um, Mm -hmm. But that, to me, too, was, like, an even... Yet another way that I think that this movie was just like, ugh, just so, like, so genius was to not only do a good job of showing the way that our culture and especially, like, just like the white supremacy within it, like you said, the quote of like, they love what we make, but not us, like, the way that they kind of like exploit Anthony. Um, and then villainize him, mm-hmm. but also with the fact that the sort of true hero or like the true backbone of the story is a black woman, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like the strength yeah. in a lot of this movie is a, is coming from Brianna. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true, and I love. That this movie sort of, like you said, it does center really on both of them and it and it tells both of their stories together. And I love that both of these characters feel fully realized and very fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's awesome. I read on the IMDb trivia that there was some conversation about bringing Virginia Madsen back as Helen. I'm so glad that they decided not to because she has, again, I love... That movie, that character is very problematic. She has had her time and space. Yeah. Like, uh, academic honestly, white I thought women have the, had their space. I, honestly, for, from the trailer, I thought that the the lady who was like the art critic in the movie, I thought she was her. I also, honestly, I did watching this and I was like, I know that's not her, but like yeah, she, she looks enough like, like her, her that it was distracting. But that was yeah. also kind of a, I wonder if that was purposeful too, because that lady was also like an academic white woman who was incredibly exploitative was ex- yeah incredibly who was basically like your story your perspective your experience is not valid is not worthwhile until she was like oh but now i'm writing an article about this yeah but now i can use it for my own personal gain exactly um yeah but yeah no i agree and i and i also just think like so like sort of like um i don't know like a lot of times i feel like especially within the film industry um and did you watch the trailer for the movie before the movie came out i think i had seen one very early teaser for it but i i I remember them using that really creepy version of say my name by destiny's child which i love because i I avoided the trailers trailers. but like yeah the trailers, I would say, really would have led one to believe that this movie was going to almost entirely focus on Anthony and Anthony alone. Yeah. So I, and I kind of, it kind of reminds me of Promising Young 
young woman in a way where like the trailer led people to believe it was going to be one thing. And then once you get people, once you get the butts in the seats, that's when the real shit gets going. Um, I really just have so much respect for films and filmmakers who are able to do that, especially in this day and age when like everything is so easily like spoiled and, um, like exposed beforehand, like to have a movie like this where I'm still to have a horror movie, especially where I, and a high profile one where I was like genuinely shocked, um, and excited by like the twists and turns of the story is really hard to do. Yeah. Um, and especially one like this, where the twists and turns were both surprising, but also like very, very meaningful. Um, it makes it all the more impressive to me. Yeah. Also, I have to I say wanted- that when I was seeing this, there was a family next to me, um, a black family, and there was a like six or seven year old girl with them who didn't even flinch like the whole movie. So every time I was scared, I would look over at her and be like, damn, I got to I got to get my shit together. Like this little girl is like, whatever. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Um, And it kind of reminded me a little bit of like when you and I saw Ghostbusters and the feeling we had of like. I mean, every time I see a movie where the hero is a woman and I think about like little girls watching it, mm-hmm. I, the, you know, I get excited about just like that experience for them um, and also just normalizing that <laughs> in general in storytelling. Um, but so I thought about that a little bit too with this movie where I was like even more excited to see like Brianna become more and more the focal point because I was like also acutely aware of like the child sitting next to me who might, who not might, who most likely like doesn't have that experience often. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the look of Candyman in this movie and we're going to get into very spoiler territory now. We've kind of dipped our toes in, but we're going, we're just diving in now. So at the end of the movie, throughout the movie, I should say, Anthony has got, he got stung by a bee on his hand. And throughout the movie, he's sort of um, slowly rotting away, basically. So infected. (laughs) Yeah. From where, and not even just infected, like, his hand pretty quickly looks dead. It's like withered and it's gross. Like every time they every up. time they showed that, everyone at my theater would be like, "Ooh, yeah. <laughs> like you gotta and, get that looked at." <laughs> and as it's coming up his neck and stuff, it's like looking like little honeycombs, like rotting out of his skin. It's really cool, very cool. Um, and so eventually he completely becomes Candyman. And not only does he have this sort of like pocked and honey marked uh, and rotted skin, but his entire head becomes engulfed in bees. And I was really interested in this aesthetic because of a couple things. So uh, Candyman historically is the only black slasher in the horror canon. Mm -hmm. And two podcasts that I listen to, Afro Horror and Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood, both talk about the look of Tony Todd in the original Candyman. And aside from how 
absolutely breathtakingly beautiful and super tall Tony Todd is. Mm. They talk about the fact that the the design of him as a as a quote unquote villain is so simple, right? Like um, in Afro horror, the women who host that show talked about how they loved that his jacket has like a very black exploitation vibe to mm-hmm. it. Um, and they liked how simple the costume design is. We should at this point note that uh, a dear friend of our family who uh, we know through our stepmom, Leonard Pollock, was the costume designer on Candyman. So <gasps> I big, forgot. Big ups to him. Yeah, big ups to Leonard. Um, but in Black Man Can't Jump in Hollywood, they sort of talk about the idea that, like, there's actually something really, I shouldn't say actually, there is something really problematic about Candyman as a character who is quote unquote a monster just being a black man. Like, the movie didn't feel the need to do anything to him to make him look scary mm-hmm. because being a big black man is scary enough by itself. Yeah. Um, and so. You know, like, he, if you compare him to other slashers in the horror canon, like Michael and Jason and Freddy, he's the only one who still just looks like a person that you could encounter on the street. Mm -hmm. And so I really like that Nia DaCosta did um, make Candyman look monstrous, whether it's the Candyman ghost that we've seen throughout the movie, who is just this, like, the face of of a black man who has been battered by the police... Or whether it's uh, Anthony sort of, like, taking on that role and having this sort of, like, honeycombed Mm -hmm. face that is then surrounded by bees to really make him, like, so he's not Anthony anymore when that happens. The the transition has happened. Well, and I think, too, part of that, too, is it's, like, the transformation of that is, as we said, Mm -hmm. um, Anthony, well, the actor who plays him, Yaya, is gorgeous and to see him get slowly eaten away by the more and more like injustices that he encounters mm-hmm. or dis- or learns about um i think is also part of that like part of what turns him turns like this like objectively like beautiful person into this like monster is the world around him mm-hmm. and especially yeah, and the like, system that he is forced to to be a part right. of and especially the the white characters in the movie who are primarily aiming to just like use him for their own profit yeah yeah i think that's very very well said I also um, really liked, and I think this is something that we can and should grapple with as two white women talking about this movie, is that in this movie in particular, so like I said, some of the readings that I have uh, encountered of the original Candyman question whether or not the stories that are originally attributed to Candyman, so the murder of Ruthie Jean and the the, um, attack on the young boy, whether those were actually perpetrated by Candyman or not, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we don't see those happen, so we don't know. Um, The attacks that we do see perpetrated in the original movie are all a result of Helen calling Candyman. Mm -hmm. And and there's a movie that uh, a woman you may or may not remember in the cold open of Candyman, someone is recounting a story, um, and they're telling the story of Candyman, and they're talking about a young teenager 
and her like hot boyfriend who comes over when she's babysitting uh, her hot boyfriend played by Ted Raimi, which is pretty great. Um, and she calls Candyman, and then they are both killed. And and it's interesting because to me, I was like, oh, I wonder if her doing that coincided with something happening at Cabrini Green. But there seems to be this tie that's made much more um, clear in this movie that Candyman in this movie shows up when he is called. Mm-hmm. And he is called, I think, exclusively by white women who just seem to think like they are completely invincible and this is bullshit. So they're going to do it. And, um, and then Candyman shows up and, and, and hurts them Mm -hmm. and kills them. Um, and there's a great line in the movie where they're talking about Candyman and Brianna's like, who would do that? Like who would say his name? And then the movie is like white women would do it because (laughs) for the same reason that Helen feels empowered, like cut to, (laughs) Yeah, cut to a bunch of white girls in high school. I mean, it's exactly what the first movie is about, right? That Helen feels entirely empowered to walk into Cabrini Green where she doesn't belong, where she might be in danger or where um, Bernadette might be in danger because she just feels completely invincible and fearless because that is what Mm -hmm. society has taught her to to feel. Um, And I like that this movie makes that so explicit. Do you think that the girl from the bathroom scene who was in the bathroom stall. You think that they're like setting her up to be in like, if there's a sequel to this, cause that's what I thought. It's possible. I was going to ask you, is she from that movie knives and skin that we covered? Um, I don't think so. Oh, it looked, she looked like her, but I believe you because you're a human IMDb. <laughs> if, if I've learned one thing, it's that. Um, yeah, I don't think she was, but especially like, Oh my gosh, she was. You should listen to oh, me. Oh, she was? Yes. Oh, my, my B. I recognized all the beautiful stuff in her locks. Mm. No one ever listens to me. Her name is Erion Roach. Certainly not everybody in this who's listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> she's the she's the um she's the chick that like makes all her cool uh, clothes mm. and stuff. I know we didn't really like that movie, but she was good in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, um, but I was really wondering if they're angling for that. Cause it, cause also her, if that was her origin story, it would also kind of, it was sort of similar to like, like the, the opening with, um, God, I just names. William Burke. William Burke's origin story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Hannah, I know that we've been running for a little while, and I have a couple other things to say. Was there anything else about this movie that you wanted to talk about that we didn't hit on? Um, well, the asshole gallery dude, um, mm-hmm. he was also an asshole on the shy. Um, so just for those of you who didn't catch that. So he's typecast, he's typecast as an asshole as an from asshole. Chicago. Um, and then, even though he looks so much like the guy who plays Crispin in, um... I know. AJ next, Bowen. Um, horror. dude, but horror often both cast as assholes. Yeah. Um, and then... Yeah, I just... Um... The main thing for me was just... I think I kind of already got most of it out, but just how truly effective I found this movie um, mm-hmm. and the twist and turns 
just everything. I'm so glad that they were able to wait and release in theaters. Yeah. Um, and I'm so glad that I was able to see it in a theater in the way that I did. Um, and yeah, and I'm glad that even in talking about it, like when it comes out, well, A, all weekend I've been like, I want to go watch this again. But same here. I really want to go see it again, but also I do want to like go and um, research the names and like I, I really appreciate the way that it is propelling the conversation in a really meaningful and effective way, I think. Mm-hmm. And also just being while also being an incredibly good movie. Yep. I think that is very well said. I wanted to give you a couple of uh, trivia facts about this movie. The first is that as of yesterday, this movie has made $22.5 million. Um, I hope this movie just like crushes at the, at the box office. I, I'm with you where I will probably go see it again before it's out of theaters. Um, and if you haven't already gotten this impression from our conversation, um, I have so many resources to share with the listeners. I really hope, you know, like Hannah said, this movie really encourages you to um, to dialogue with it and to continue thinking about it and to teach more, teach yourself more and seek out more information. So we're going to try to share some of that stuff with you. Um, I wanted to say that this movie was originally supposed to be released on June 12th, 2020, which was not even a month after George, George Floyd was murdered. Mm. And on June 12th, 2020, two of the top news stories were that Starbucks banned employees from wearing anything in support of Black Lives Matter and that the Louisville City Council unanimously passed Brianna's Law to ban no-knock warrants, which is a good piece of news, but sort of belies the fact that despite you know, legitimate gains legislatively, Breonna Taylor never got justice. Mm -hmm. And not that, not that you can have justice or something like that, but there was never accountability um, or justice for her family. And there still hasn't been. So I just thought that those two headlines really highlight that we still have a lot of work to do. And so, um, I think just to that earlier, this movie was supposed to be released but seeing it now feels mm-hmm. almost nearly no different. Mm-hmm. Um, says a lot about the work that we still need to do. Yeah, I think that's true. And and in that same vein, um, I'm obviously going to link to all of the podcasts and things that I listen to and articles I read and things like that um, in preparation for this this uh, episode, which are largely related to Candyman specifically. But I also wanted to uh, point people to some other resources. So like we talked about earlier, candymanmovie.com slash impact has a ton of really amazing resources that I have only just now started to dig into. Um, if you are interested in learning more about Um, some of the things that the movie addresses in terms of redlining and sort of the way in which communities uh, like Cabrini Green were sort of like created and then isolated and left to sort of uh, falter and decay and then sort of taken away as though society at large had nothing to do with that process. Um, I would recommend two resources. Both of these things will be linked in the show notes. The first is an article called The Case for Reparations by ta Coates that was written 
I believe, back in 2015 for The Atlantic. If you want to dive a little deeper, there's a really amazing book called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein that talks a lot about redlining and I think makes an incredibly, not just compelling, but um, pretty definitive case that uh, geographic and residential segregation, none of it has happened by accident. And I don't just mean like it happened because some people are racist. The U.S. government very much... um, fostered and created and implemented systems that made those circumstances happen. And so all of those resources, along with the things I mentioned and a Wikipedia on George Sinney Jr. and Cabrini Green will be linked in our show notes. Um, and I would also say that um, if people are interested, uh, the organization that my shirt uh, company proceeds go towards um, that I would say that people should just go check out their website. Um, it's called My Block, My Hood, My City. Um, and it is an organization in Chicago that is dedicated to um, empowering various neighborhoods and um, the people in them and also trying to keep those certain neighborhoods from being gentrified. Um, awesome. We'll link to that too in the show notes. Thank you, yeah. Anna. Um, Okay, so Hannah and I talked a little bit up top. We're going to do something a little different this time. It's not going to be in Ladier News uh, so much, and it's going to be too faceted. So um, everybody buckle up. What I was originally going to talk about as our in Ladier News uh, is a resource called Anti-Racism Daily. It is a once a week newsletter that you can get to your uh, email inbox. I will link to how you can sign up for that if you want. Um, And... I would highly recommend it. It's got a lot of good resources and sort of to what we've talked about will like encourage you to continue reading and learning and finding new voices and people to follow and things to pay attention to. Um, And in that vein, I wanted to really quickly um, sort of like highlight an article that they shared this past week that felt really relevant because of the story that Hannah and I have been talking about um, this week and the movie that we've been discussing, which is something that I didn't know. Uh, which is that Target, the store, has an incredibly problematic and very long-standing um, relationship with police mm. in the United States. Um, so this is something that I'm sure a lot of our listeners may already be aware of, and this is a, a, a growing edge for me, so something that I've just learned. Um, but uh, just as a couple rundowns of statistics, they have um, they are one of the most influential corporate donors to law enforcement agencies in the country, uh, and that includes donating tens of thousands, probably at this point, hundreds of thousands of dollars over the past 25 plus years to law enforcement agencies all over the country to invest in all kinds of surveillance systems. Um, They are headquartered in Minneapolis and they actually worked with the city attorney's office in Minneapolis to create a system that would prevent people that had petty crimes on their records from being allowed in the downtown business district. They basically created what are called geographic restriction orders that if you had any kind of petty crime um, on your record, which of course you, if that happens, you are more likely to be poor and uh, and a BIPOC individual, not necessarily because you commit petty crimes more often, but because you probably have had more interactions with the police, statistically speaking, mm-hmm. than um, middle-class white folks have. Um And so Target, uh, for a very long time, really branded itself politically on its ability to, quote, control urban centers and make communities safer. 
um, when the Twin Cities were evolving in the 2000s and sort of becoming a more gentrified place, um, they talked about wanting to create safeness which didn't really have anything to do with people's actual safety. Mm -hmm. It was just like a feeling of white people not feeling in danger. In other words, white folks not being around people that weren't white. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a police executive research forum, that uh, report that was sponsored by Target, a Minneapolis police chief referred to um, this element of society as a, quote, ick factor. Um, So I just, like, that article we will link to... um, Again, it's just like further further evidence that we all need to be paying attention to things. It's further evidence that w- dominant white supremacist patriarchal culture really likes to sort of uh, create and delineate spaces that are acceptable and then push people that they don't find acceptable out of those spaces. Um, and it's important for us to pay attention to those, especially because uh, in that article they talk about the fact that at both of the sites of the Cabrini-Green high-rises that have since been torn down, there are targets at both of those sites. That, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, like, I didn't know about that that part of, tar- like, the target of it all, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, when I was describing it, I was like, I literally had only known Cabrini-Green up until that point as a giant target. It's, like, the biggest yeah. target I've ever seen. yeah. So something to bear in mind, I mean, I'm someone who has historically shopped at Target quite frequently, and um, that will probably not be the case, that will certainly not be the case anymore. So um, they have, it seems, tried to grapple with that relationship in the past five or six years, but uh, my impression is that a lot of the way they've tried to um, change their ways is by sort of uh, trying to erase it all and pretend it never happened instead of, like, trying to do meaningful work and acknowledge um, harm they have caused. So, you know, just like... um, we white folks in general, um, just like, uh, let's just pretend that never happened and we'll erase it and move forward. So, um, so I would like to recommend that you pay attention to, um, anti-racism daily, but the actual thing that Hannah and I wanted to talk about, again, it's not news in particular, but it, it is very close to our heart. Um, Hannah and I both love and have spent quite a bit of time in New Orleans, um, down in Louisiana, which as you all know, has been hit really hard by Hurricane Ida. And I think we are, it will be days and weeks and months before we really know the toll of what this storm has done to that, that city and the communities around New Orleans, all the other Gulf Coast, um, communities that have been really, really hit hard, um, on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And so, Hannah and I wanted to recommend, and I will link to, a mutual aid fund called Forever Calcasio. Um, They are an organization um, out of Louisiana, I believe. Um, And as as far as I understand, it's run by one woman. Um, You can send her money via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. She is really interested in helping the people of uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, directly. And so she uh, has a website where people can sort of read, reach out if they need financial assistance. And she makes direct cash um, payments to people who need money, who have been impacted by um, by climate change in Lake Charles and obviously right now by Hurricane Ida. So um, this mutual aid fund was recommended to me by Anti-Racism Daily. So we're going to share her info so that if you feel so inclined, you can donate um, 
to help the people of uh, St. Charles, Louisiana in the wake of Hurricane Ida. Yeah, well said. And uh, I think that's it for us, Hannah. You it know, we joked up top. Meteor dues because it's Hurricane Ida. Yeah, and the woman who runs the mutual aid is a woman, so we sort of did it. Um, well, 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 we, well. That should be the slogan <laughs> of our podcast. We sort of did. We it. We sort of did it. <laughs> um, so. Hannah, we talked up front before we were recording about how this was going to be a much more serious episode than we usually do. Thank you all for sticking with us. I hope that you got as much out of the episode listening to it as I think we did just sort of getting to talk through it and process this movie. I think we both could have kept talking about it for hours, but we want to respect all of your free time. So um, I think that's it for me, Hannah. Where can folks find you on the internet? Um, I would just say too, like my parting words about this would just be, I think that everybody should see the movie. Um, pay to see the movie and see it in theaters it if in that theaters, is a safe option if for that's you. Safe option for you and and do the do research and educate yourself before, during, and after, or maybe not during. Like, don't have your phone out. Like, that's rude as fuck. But just like, <laughs> yeah, don't be afraid to admit when you're ignorant to something and to do work to change that. Um, and, um, where can people find me on the internet? Good luck. I've heard that you have an Instagram for your shirts. Oh, yeah. So I have my shirt company, bettershirts.org, and you can find us on Instagram at bettershirtschicago. Hell yeah. Uh, if you're interested in finding me on the internet, I am on Twitter and Instagram She's at everywhere. Spam. <laughs> uh, I I also don't have a TikTok. That's uh, for we leave that to our brother. Oh, um, I had a if I had orientation today for my new field placement, and the people in my office, as part of orientation, were like, "We're really trying to build our TikTok presence. So if any of you young people have like ideas of ways we can do that, and I like really want to laugh out loud because I was like, I I don't ha- I don't know how that works and. Mm-hmm. I think me and probably most of the other – there's two other master's interns, and I think all of us are probably too old. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So I'm like, uh, well, you know, your older brother knows how to do it, uh, so I believe in you. I guess that's true, but I feel like technologically he's younger than I am. Yeah, he is pretty just good to at be, the interwebs. Just to be the youngest person in the room and still not be young enough to understand <laughs> technology <laughs> is – Oh, my God. Kind of funny to me. <laughs> It's your daily struggle. Um, if you want to find our podcast on the internet, we are on Twitter at 28dayslady underscore ER. We are also, as of recently, on Instagram. We are 28dayslady-er. And if you want to reach out to us, uh, send us some feedback, questions, you know, comments. We're here for any of it. You can send us an email. That's 28dayslady-er at gmail.com. Um, we are so thankful to Anatomy of a Scream for letting us be a part of their fabulous pod squad. Please check out their website. And if you feel so inclined, maybe give a little look to their amazing publication, uh, Grimm Magazine, which comes out uh, twice a year. The newest edition, which drops today, September 1st, is featuring a story written by yours truly about the contagion of song in Once More with Feeling, the famous musical Buffy episode, comparing it to the dancing plague in France in the 1500s. You're welcome. Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, Did you... This podcast is coming out on September 1st? 
Correct. And you're Wednesday. just it- gonna not mention that it's your birthday. So you heard it here firsthand as the first person to wish me happy birthday. We are recording this two days before my actual birthday, but when you hear this, it will be my birthday. So for all intents and really purposes, should. I did it first, bitch. So Sophie's soon to be husband, get your shit together. Yeah, he messed it right up. Um to the listeners, if you want to give me a birthday present, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter and maybe send us an email. We love to read emails on the podcast, and it happens so infrequently. Um, so I think that's it for me, Hannah. And Do you have any uh, parting words? Give me a birthday present for Sophie's birthday. My address is, <laughs> and then Sophie, you should jokingly bleep out like I'm giving out my real address. <laughs> okay, well. Um, you know, if you're going to have sex on Sophie's birthday, which... Which you, which should. you should. Everyone should have sex on my birthday. a great way to celebrate. Um, <laughs> just remember to always pee after sex. Clink! <laughs>